1: This week on the New Statesman podcast, we have, with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague Helen Lewis, never-ending reshuffles, Tory splits over Europe, and Stephanie Boland joins us for the thorny question of whether or not men and women's voices are treated different in serious literature, and we have George Eaton down the line from Westminster with what's going on and what's moving in the House of Commons.
2: Hi, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman podcast. Welcome to our relaunch, reshuffled, if you will, Stephen, uh, podcast, which we're trying something slightly different for this week. As you'll notice, I have been much, you are very much the Ken Livingston of this podcast, actually. You've been appointed to Mm co-chair the podcast review. Uh, And we will also be bringing George later in with a a segment we might call down the line from the lobby, or we might call a pun on George's name, but he doesn't. He doesn't have much input into that, but let's see. Uh, and but the good news is that there will be fifty to sixty percent more Stephen Bush in this podcast than before. Um, so let's start off talking about the, the reshuffle because we have to. Stephen, was it a good reshuffle? I can't believe I'm even asking that question.
1: I mean, I think the problem is, is at the moment it's still not entirely clear if one can say it, it is a finished reshuffle. So. So the weird thing is, is so it went on for a very long time, and the reason why it, and is in, indeed at time of recording still technically going on. At first, the reason why it went on is then effectively, you always have this problem when you're forming a cabinet or a shadow cabinet. It's slightly easier in opposition because you don't have a majority to protect. Uh, in opposition, in in government, of course, if someone resigns and starts voting against you, and you have a majority of twelve, like Cameron, mm. then suddenly you only have a majority of ten, because uh, obviously they count twice.
2: That doesn't happen though because, yeah, because presumably you're assuming. Well, actually, I was going to say it, all of these calculations are thrown out completely by the fact that who knows what, how many Labour MPs are going to vote in line with Labour Party policy on any given day yeah, of the week at but, the moment.
1: I mean, so it's more, but it's easier in opposition because you don't have a majority to lose. And if you win an election next time, then everyone will hope they can be in government, so they'll 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 come rack around even if they were sacked in the years before the election.
2: Okay, so How, let's do the reshuffle roundup for people who've been living under a rock or not following your live blog for the last what is it now? Thirty It's we're now in the hour thirty
1: eight <laughs> of the live blog. Um How so, long till
2: it's longer than Jason Alexander and Britney Spears' marriage?
1: Another um, four hours? No, she's got to hit fifty five hours to beat Britney Spears' marriage. So um Which I wouldn't entirely rule out. Um, So basically, uh, the big move so far is that Michael Duggar, the shadow culture secretary, has been sacked. Maria Eagle has been moved from shadow defence to shadow culture. And Emily Thornberry has been moved to shadow defence. That is the really significant move because she uh, believes in the unilateral abandonment of Britain's nuclear deterrent. It is the first time since 1988 that a unilateralist has held uh, that post under Labour. Because the thing is, although a lot of the young people who uh, who who were inspired by Corbyn and a lot of the uh, the sympathetic commentators in the, the media and in the media are were a very anti-Blair, for the key people around Corbyn, both the influential people in the grassroots and uh, in his office, it's actually Neil Kinnock who begins Labour's fall from grace. So for them, it's about peeling back what they what Diane described to me as the totemic. Uh, abandonment of nuclear disarmament. And so that puts him in a strong position to do that. But
2: that's a kind of interesting reflection of... <clears throat> I mean, we, there's been this big argument with Michael Crick saying, you know, don't say moderates anymore, and trying to find out what the various factions are called. I know it's a pet peeve of yours when people who are brownites get referred to as Blairites. Like, Blairite is this dismissive mm. word for centre-right. But there is this interesting split on the Labour left, which is that the trade unions are... Largely pro Trident, right? Because the yeah. Trident means jobs. Defence industry means jobs. So there's a split between the kind of radical left and the institutional left on the labour on the labour left.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. The the difficulty with labels and the reason why I get irritated with the use of the word Blairite is particularly in this reshuffle. It shows why if you use it, you haven't understood what's going on. Because um, Pat McFadden was also sacked. Why was Hillary Benn uh, not at risk? Because basically his mates. Uh, who are mostly on the soft left or a brownite would have resigned. There are no Blairites left, which means that actually if you fire a Blairite, there are going to be very few resignations. The only reason why there have been resignations post-Pat McFadden in a display of astonishing incompetence, some idiot... Uh, well, you know, the Team Corbyn decided to brief that um, one of the reasons why he'd been sacked is his answer in the Paris attacks, which I have here.
2: So it's something about the idea of whether or not you can blame you know entirely the terrorists or whether or not their actions are in some ways uh, influenced by western foreign policy which is a quite a kind of interesting discussion to have right and i think that everybody would accept that our actions in the middle east have contributed to destabilization have engendered a huge Mm. amount of resentment but ultimately it is no one's you know millions of people in the middle east have reacted to that not by going into paris cafes and starting to shoot people yeah
1: i mean i think yeah my my sort of Personal take on the whole blowback question is i I think it, it well actually oddly enough, Pat mcfadden once said and he thought that it was uh the last vestige of imperialism on the British left because you know just to assume that you know actually people are capable of making the best of a bad job you know, if you look at so Palestine, that, so where people are having an utterly terrible time the ma- overwhelming majority of Palestinians don't blow things up if you look at um you know South Africa under apartheid, you know my, my grandparents didn't um put Tires around people's necks and set them on fire. Most people do not react to awful, awful situations with violence. The ones who do are thugs, and it's just insulting to the people who don't. But that's what's Uh,
2: fascinating is that, that, I mean, that question was disloyal, right? So let's, you know, let's not beat around the bush. Um, That question was designed to. Draw a contrast with Jeremy Corbyn. He wants to explain a lot more, right? He wants to try and understand, and to the extent that shoot to kill, he kind of went, well, what about the rule of law? So asking Cameron that question was a kind of d- attempt to deliberately embarrass Jeremy Corbyn. So you can, I can see, for if, like when I stretch to see from Jeremy Corbyn's point of view, that is not a helpful thing for a, a one of your ministers to be doing, is it?
1: Yeah, and I mean, on the live blog when Pat McFadden went, I did say, you know, actually, it is perfectly reasonable to reconfigure your. Front bench, so it is closer to your opinion. It's just there were other things Pat McFadden had done, and so the weird thing is is so they were asked this, and they said, Oh, yeah, that's part of the reason, and then this did some other reasons, just like if you had other reasons. Here's an idea. Don't use the one which is going to compel other people to resign because there now have been, yeah. uh, including, um, you know, from Johnny Reynolds, who actually on the railways is a, is at one with uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Corbyn actually thanked him and said, "Yeah, we share an interest in." know uh, yeah. it, it's it just and it just means that the reshuffle is still ongoing, and he just um and I. It's also I'm, kind of it, it yeah. really
2: draws attention to one of the things that is, that turns a good number of voters off about Jeremy Corbyn. Right, it's kind of saying you might as well say. We we've, we've resigned we've we've sacked him because he said that we our economic plans were stupid and we were planning to you know cede sovereignty to Russia. Don't say something that is some that is a bad thing that is obviously connecting and is a Tory attack line because it kind of hands them that gift, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, the thing is, the Conservatives want to go into the next election uh, on on a platform of security. Jeremy Corbyn can't keep you safe. Jeremy Corbyn has said he wants to abolish the army. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn wants to get rid of Trident. Uh, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn is sympathetic to terrorists. So, so it is, from a tactical perspective, in terms of winning the next election, it is a howler.
2: Um, I'm just going to say a brief positive word for Emily Thornbury, who is actually my... Constituency MP because I am a member of the London elite that is taking over the Labour Party. Clearly, but I think that's not a bad that's not a bad shout, is it? I and mean, she's incredible. She's very clever. She's very quick. She's good. She can do TV. She can master a brief really quickly. I know there are some questions about this law firm that prosecutes soldiers, and I think you'd be very hard pressed to find anybody who's a unilateral disarmer in the party who you couldn't find some complaint like that about. But it's not in. Once all the kind of resentments died down, actually these are not bad appointments, are they?
1: No, I think, I mean, I, I think Emily Thornbury is a very good appointment. I don't really understand why she was looked over last mm. time. Uh, I think, I, I agree. I also think she was very shabbily treated by Ed Miliband.
2: Um, over Rochester. Over
1: Rochester, because actually she tweets, I mean, she doesn't really tweet so much anymore, but she used to tweet uh, photos of things which, to my mind, seemed fairly banal all the time. Well, though,
2: it, didn't she just tweet an um, image from last Malvinas? And that's upset the Falklanders. Or someone's dug up a oh, time when she's previously yeah. tweeted it. So I, I think if I was Emily Thornberry now, I'd probably just start tweeting a lot of, you know, kind of ima- yeah. image from Michael Duggar's back garden. But
1: she, she, is, yeah, she is very good and she can go on television and get a message out. And one of the problems that uh, the Corbyn Project has is because they have a missing generation, then they, the, the 2010 uh, parliamentary battles did not go well for the left. The, a lot of the 2015ers, some of whom will will never be ready, and some of them will need to grow into it. And so, really, Diane Abbott, other than Emily Thornberry, is the only other minister who is both um, sort of a Pucker Corbinite and knows her way around the TV studio. So it's a very good appointment from that. And the thing is, is whenever whenever there's a reshuffle, and the interesting thing is, it already moved on a bit with this. year you know, when Michael Duggar was sacked, people were like, oh, you know, how could how could this happen? How could this guy who was talking bad about Jeremy all over town have been sacked? I um, do so no, it's good. When the dust settles at the moment, obviously it's hour 38, I don't want to speculate what it will look like for hour 55, uh, Corbyn will be in a stronger position than he was at the start of the reshuffle.
2: Well, that's the thing that struck me, is very much about how, um, you know, the, it, it's going to upset the PLP, and the PLP are going to feel a certain amount of resentment, but ultimately, not. it's like that nothing matters until they're so resentful that they try and launch a coup attempt, right? That's the thing. Any amount of resentment is just, is kind of, it just doesn't have anywhere to to go.
1: I also think nothing really matters until the members have changed their view about Corbyn. So the one risk, I think, I mean I don't subscribe to the view that the average Labour activist has gone mad or that the new joiners are all people who don't care about winning elections. I know that's what the YouGov poll says, but I think it's a bit like so in it looks like that in twenty twenty we'll have a contest between George Osborne, who everyone hates, and Jeremy Corbyn, who everyone hates. Yeah, you know, sorry, I know many of our listeners like him, but I'm you are in an extreme minority. You are outnumbered by the morbidly obese in this country. Like yeah, like <laughs> it is strange to like Jeremy Corbyn. And I say that's someone who voted for A V in twenty eleven. Uh yeah, like um, but don't, I, mean, I can, But I was what think... will what will happen is you'll see polls and people will be asked, Do you care about um whether or not you like the prime minister and people will go, no, because they'll, will lie. because they'll either go, they'll either be choosing between Jeremy Corbyn, who they think they think is a risk to national security, but his heart is in the right place or Osborne who they think will keep them safe, but they think is a bastard. Um, and uh, and they will and that will mean... But if there was a nice option, if there was someone who they thought would keep them in the... Who, who they thought was in the right place, who'd keep them safe, they'd go, of course I care that my Prime Minister's a nice guy. Mm. And I think when members say, I don't care about winning the next election, what they really mean is, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn can win the next election. I don't think Yvette Cooper can win the next election. I don't think Andy Burnham can win the next election. I don't think Liz Kendall can win the next election. And so if I'm going to lose, I might as well lose in my comfort zone. I don't think members... So I think, yeah then basically Jeremy is strong up until the point someone who emerges who could win an election at that point I think he would be at risk but I don't see anyone in the parliamentary party who has a better chance of winning the 2020 election than Jeremy Corbyn.
2: Well, let's just turn briefly to the Tories, because there's been a strange kind of dualism this week where the, the, the Tories have had the, a sort of reverse of the same problem, right, which is a Europe, which is a perennial kind of open sore. Uh, David Cameron has announced that he will suspend ministerial responsibility for the duration of referendum campaigning. And the kind of quid pro quo for that is that they have to shut up until then. Uh, now, some people, including I think Janan Ganesh and the FT, have said they think that this Tory Europe splits is overdone, and actually this the party will kind of keep its, you know, it will twang back into place like a piece of elastic. Do you think that's true? Do you think this is? Do you think Tory splits is a theme that we should store up for the end of the year in the same way that Labour splits will be a, a running theme?
1: No, I don't think it is the same party because so the. Th- the, the reason why Tory splits so Tory splits over Europe were a recurring theme of the Thatcher government. The reason why they became dehabilitating under Major and Haig and Ian Duncan Smith to a lesser extent is because the Conservative Party didn't feel it could win and in 1997 to 1992 to 97 um, Tony Blair didn't terrify them. They didn't have this thing of oh, but if we mess it up, then this this mm. this Boschelvik. Yeah. will will take over. And the thing that a lot of Labour activists, I think, misunderstand is when the Tories honk on about Jeremy Corbyn being a threat to national security, they believe it. They do not want their splits to be the thing which hands power to to a Corbyn-led Labour Party. I think, however, it feels likely to me that the sweet spot to be, if you want to be Cameron's successor, is probably to be the person who backs Leave and for Leave to have lost in the referendum.
2: In a kind of smp post-referendum kind of you then have had the right opinion and it's just sad for you that you didn't get yeah what you want so that means boris johnson or theresa may presumably i mean that's the thing i find fascinating is that the economy you know george Osborne got away with it once saying yeah we know all those things i promised well we couldn't now do them so you've got to give me another five years and i'll definitely do them already looks like he won't be able to do them Mm. but there could be a really serious shock to the world economy or risk in that which would have repercussions for the british economy i mean it's it's fascinating to see the smp you know predicated talking about uh, oil at 135 dollars a barrel and we're looking at you know it's far, far below that you know that oh, george osborne's sums could prove pretty spectacularly bad the question is then whether or not still people think that labor are are unelectable i mean can the can the tories make themselves unelectable i think is a really interesting question for the next you know, I think the next election could well be a, a choice between two, like you say, two options at the country, neither of which they yeah. find. Yeah, and then they they the fascinating thing appealing.
1: is, it will test a lot of theories about how median voter behaviour works, because some people will think. You know, so there's one argument that if you have two options who no one likes, it drives turn up, turnout up, because people who fear Corbyn will go to the ballot papers, and people who hate Osborne will go to the ballot papers. The other risk is, of course, that turnout will drop. The interesting thing is usually there's a strong third party, but no one likes the Liberal Democrats. So it is, it is fascinating because both Osborne and Corbyn, if you looked at their numbers in a vacuum, you'd go, wow, they're going to get crushed at the next election. If you look at them together, you'd still expect Corbyn to get crushed, to be honest. But it's less certain if it's Osborne than it is if it is any of the other uh, options. I thought
2: that polling about, I mean, it's a very small subsample and blah, 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 about the Midlands and about the fact that Boris would do much better. I, mean, I feel like on behalf of my people, I should apologise, really, that, that we're obviously quite well won over by uh, someone who's quite good at being on Have I Got News For You. But it was I think that was a really interesting poll. But no doubt we'll return to this next week um, <laughs> when it might very well still be the reshuffle. Oh, God. (laughs) But that's all for now. I'm Caroline and I'm Anna and we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast Seriously. This week we talked about horror parody show Scream Queens, the film of the Alan Bennett play Lady in the Van and 90s children's dog themed TV show Wishbone.
3: You can find us at newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y or on iTunes or on the podcatcher of your choice.
1: Hello. Helen and I are joined by Stephanie Boland, our digital assistant, to discuss uh, a recent essay by Siri Hoodset on how men and women writers are perceived differently. set discusses the different way that her work is reacted to and contrasts it with, among other people, the work of, and I'm now going to filter out it, uh, Nausgard.
2: We decided it's Karl Ove Nausgard. Knausgaard. I, I've heard Knausgaard. Okay, let's go but, oh, yeah, Let's well, go I, overboard I, I, on the kind of Norwegian <laughs> thing, because
1: that'll sound cooler. You will hear a variety of pronunciations of Nausgaard in this podcast.
2: So I think probably we need to start, start by sitting and seeing, because miraculously there are people who whose lives are yet yeah, untouched by the godlike genius of Knausgaard, uh, so he's been writing it. It's, it's going to end up being six parts, that right St- Stephanie, the, se- the sequence of novels called My Struggle... And that is deliberately an echo of it mine. It is a deliberate camp.
3: reference to Meinkampf. It's called Min Kampf in in Norwegian.
2: So, so this it's... kind of gets mentioned every single time. Why? Like, what's the what's the shtick of that?
3: I don't know. I it... genuinely don't know.
2: Because <laughs> it's sort of just like putting a big sign on the front cover, going edgy, isn't it? Controversy.
3: Yeah, and and I don't know if there's something about personal struggle and actually is personal struggle as bad as.
2: Yeah, well, yeah I, mean, I, I kind of don't it, want to it, go into that. In these novels, he chronicles his life in kind of punishing detail.
3: Yes, yes. So they're um, really deeply confessional. I think he tries to get as close to memory as possible, although some of his dialogue suggests to me that his memory is not incredible. Um, and they begin by charting his years as a young man, and then he goes back to his childhood and his relationship with his father. And they were fairly n- radical novels to be published in Norway, well, I gather that kind of confessional writing, especially men writing about masculinity in very um, self-probing terms, isn't really the done thing, but they've been hugely popular.
2: So it's something like Norway's a country of five million people. This is the It's a tiny. It cited. It's a tiny. And hundred. they've sold four hundred and fifty thousand novels put in the original Norwegian, presumably published, uh, bought largely by Norwegians.
3: Yeah, and I, I mean I read somebody the other day saying in Norway this is the equivalent of kind of going into the town square and taking all your clothes off. Um, I, I don't know how accurate that is, but it's really so quite in, radical. There, in some ways,
1: would it be um, slightly unfair of me, uh, and I say to someone who hasn't read them in either English or Norwegian, to mm. characterise them? Is it a bit like almost like Angela's Ashes or something, but without the tradition of a history of Ms. Mem or whatever to kind of make it seem so run of the mill?
2: But he, I mean, he he hasn't had a, a difficult childhood. That's the. Th- I mean, Angela's Ashes, that that whole strain that kind of came up with that and. Ah, oh, the one about that they turned into sleepers. You know, the one they turned into the film with Brad Pitt about people people having a terrible, miserable tile in their boarding school. Yeah, and being it's not of each
3: other of... none of there's not. It's not the. It's not that it's, dark. It's not quite. It's not that dark. I mean, it's kind of my father beat me and things like that. But nothing, to my mind, where I kind of go, oh, you have suffered in an, an so exceptional child. It, it's
1: autofiction, right? So it's kind of it's it's a bit like the Zuckerman novels by Rock.
3: Well this is what um Siri Husvet says is she introduces the question of autofiction, which um Canalsgaard says he's not heard of, but this is a tradition of fiction where it's between the line of autobiography and autofiction, so and fiction. So I Love Dick is probably the best.
2: So that's Chris Krause's. This is Chris Krause's. And which is a female Chris. I think it's probably quite important to say at this stage. Yeah. The thing I find is, again, I haven't read them. And I am kind of wanting to interrogate my own biases about why I haven't read them. And I think it's the blokiness that puts me off. Because actually I've read a huge amount of confessional fiction there was a great piece on i think salon at the end of last year called the, about mm-hmm. the first person industrial complex and you know internet writing is so reliant on this kind of the one of the ones that's mentioned in that piece is a piece i think that jezebel published it's or exO jane yeah. which is another site for, for girls and this was about somebody who claimed they slept with their father and you know, like there's a Jezebel piece about you know what it's like to do your first poo after having given birth. You know, really incredibly either you know personal or embarrassing kind of stuff. And this writing that that kind of scrutiny is is so associated in online writing with women that that's why I kind of I, maybe I should maybe I should read them in order to see whether or not this is true. I do worry that there is a feeling that you you praise it when it's done by a man and you think it's incredibly narcissistic without any redeeming artistic qualities when it's done by a woman.
3: I think that's completely true. I mean, I know Catherine Angel wrote a brilliant piece in the um, Los Angeles Review of Books last year about gender publishing where she talked about this idea that we're more willing to read genius into a male writer. Um, and in the case of Knausgaard, I mean, it reminds me a lot of these sort of daddy bloggers where the whole, the whole point of your column is that you're a dad at home with kids, um, which obviously a female journalist isn't able to build a whole column around this idea. That you know, masculinity—you set out to explore something about being a dad or doing masculinity, and you end up fetishizing it. And I feel that may be the case with with my struggle. Yeah,
1: it's interesting that Gabby Hinsliff basically had to write a blog about being a mum looking after her kids at home. She wasn't she, and then she was able to use that to leverage her mm. way back into writing about the bubble. But she wasn't allowed to kind of turn her regular column into into you know a into slot. A, into yeah. a mum slot um, because even. Even the Guardian, the only sort of regular mum they have is, um, is 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 a single mum, where it's clearly partly about the Guardian sense itself. Oh look, we've got a, mm. we've got a yeah. But they Stuart?
2: do have, a dad. They, they have do a dad. they have a dad. Tim yeah. Dowling, who I oh re- no, I was oh. thinking of Stuart Heritage, who's well, who writes t- more of the kind dad. of classic kind of. So Tim Dowling's kids are slightly are older, right? I think slightly, whereas Stuart Heritage's children are. Younger, and there was one that was, I think, like the ur daddy blog, which was, you know, my wife normally stays at home with the kids. For one day, and I actually have to look after them. You know, by six pm, the walls are covered in tomato sauce. I'm, you know, eating. A, I've gone feral in the kitchen in my pants, and you know, thank God she's here. I don't know how she does it every day, and it's kind of not deemed to be as interesting to read. Well, here's how I do it every day. It's actually just yeah. really boring, really hard work.
1: It's strange because there's there's also a, a double standard. Uh, the and her talks about in the essay of people assuming that her husband has taught her the stuff about... Um, is it neuroscience? Yeah, it's yeah. psychoanalysis nice. and
2: neurology and kind high of... But I got this, actually, when... It was really interesting. When I published that piece about motherhood um, and politics last summer... I had a lot of people going. Well, why aren't you talking about parenthood actually? And I said, well, because actually, what's happening here is people—you know—people physically have to take time off work for maternity leave, and the biological Mm. processes involved for that. So actually, there is—and not you know—set that aside from the fact that women. To, are far more likely to be the, the primary caregiver of children um, but that wasn't deemed interesting but then so but then i saw that gabby Hinsliff, ironically published a piece about dads like this is a thing about dads and I, no one said to her what about mums and i think it is that kind of news agenda thing about only the exceptional is interesting which is ludicrous as well because
3: obviously the social cost of having a child is always going to be so much greater for women there have been so many studies that go you take a career hit just you know, a hiring committee will look on you with slight suspicion if they think you're going to have a baby in the next five years, and you don't do that with a married man.
2: But that's dog. That's dog bites man. Whereas I think the idea of of a, of a man doing the same thing, and I think that it's, comes it's back to Nasgard, is that it's it is it is yeah, man bites dog. And that's what's interesting is that oh wow, wow, we're seeing this this a man doing what is traditionally seen as a very female type of writing. Well, it's uh, also I think if a woman does
3: confessional writing, like you say, I know um, Catherine Angel makes a comparison with Rachel Cusk, whose outline was on the Bailey's shortlist last year and you know if you've ever got a boring half an hour at work go read the Guardian comments below the line on a Rachel Cusk review because it's obscene you know narcissist and how she probably sits in waterstones looking at her own book covers and things like this.
1: The the question I sort of want to throw open is I guess you know the reason why I haven't read now Guide is when I used to work in a bookshop I had uh, the people who bought it were the kind of customers I didn't much like would it would it be better if we took things like Nausgaard less seriously uh, when a man did it, or if uh, if we took it as seriously when a a woman did it? Like, you know, just just in terms of how you see it as a bit of literary endeavour. I
2: think the thing is, I think we need to get over the the hang up about confessional writing being narcissistic a lot of the best writing that has ever been has been incredibly self involved hmm. and that and and that as an attack is one of the weakest attacks you can make on on a writer because you know writing is about trying that to understand is, people that is a self
3: involved industry and it's, people
2: yeah. are generally pretty much alike so if you can understand yourself you've gone you know you've gone go a long way to understanding other people it's like the attack on writers for being attention seekers well whoever writes a novel so in the, in the you know desperate hope that no one will, will read it
3: yeah i think it's i mean I think Canals is kind of a particular case because I know his last book in the UK sold 2000 copies or something obscenely low. So in that case, I kind of question the literary cultures industry around him. I think generally I'm always for elevating women rather than denigrating men but if we have to do six of one half a dozen of the other that's that's fine by me
2: and I think also we should acknowledge and and this is probably something that we need to talk about more the love the, a the large role that you know buying a novel reading a novel is a kind of cultural signaling process mm. I mean the funny thing is to look at pictures I, I was just looking at some pictures of Nascar, and he's got you know this great mane of sort of salt and peppery blonde hair he's you know, big dominating Norwich. he looks like he could go out with an axe and chop some wood and that's a big part of it if he was a kind of tubby little bowl fella no one no you know this wouldn't be this an epic struggle we there is a big problem about the fact that we assume that only kind of beautiful interesting people have you know big interesting lives i think that's i think that's another thing or
3: that you have to be a certain degree of attractive to write from a neutral position because if you're if you're not gorgeous obviously you know your bitterness and vulnerability and problem with your masculinity Probably isn't universal, right?
2: Yeah, I think that's an interesting point about the about masculine vulnerability because I think although people feel that this, he's doing kind of quite an unmanly thing, and that's something that Siri Husvet comes back to. At the end of the day, you still don't look at him and think of a, a weakling and a, and a loser. And I think if you if if his physicality gave that message off more strongly, that would be more. There'd a be problem. a very different
3: reception there.
2: Yeah. Well, we sold it. We sold gender in publishing. Everyone should look like a giant, strapping six foot Norwegian. That's basically. I'm
3: going to go and get working on that. Actually. Job done. Oh, I'm going to get yeah. my
2: plaid shirt out. I'm going to wrestle a bear. I already <laughs> look
3: like
1: a strapping fitfoot Norwegian. Norwegian.
2: You yeah, do yeah. Yeah. There we wrestle go. bears in the office, that is true. Great. Sorted. Thank you.
1: Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds.
2: It's time for Stephen's Anecdote of the Week.
1: So, um, during the uh, live blog, then is the time of recording still going? An entertaining story reached me of two uh, Labour staffers who shall remain nameless who actually hooked up during the while waiting to find out what was happening with the longest reshuffle. Um, so, I really hope they get married because I think that would just be the world's loveliest story and also a great premise for a movie.
2: Also, if they could call their baby something like Maria. <laughs> I was going to say, like, reshufflier, but I think that might have been... What's the baby's name that has... Vi- well, maybe that can be our call to action for this week. Listeners, if you can think of a great name for the baby that uh, might possibly come from the staff as he hooked up during the reshuffle, why not tweet either me or
1: Stephen? And now we're going to call George in Westminster to find out what's going on over there. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George.
0: So, what's been going
1: on this week? How are people feeling?
0: So, it's... In the reshuffle, that's that's dominated everything. You actually had quite a significant announcement from David Cameron, of course, saying that cabinet ministers would be given a free vote um, on EU membership. Um, that that was um, entirely overshadowed by by the reshuffle. To Labour's loss, actually, because uh, were Labour in a in a stronger position, uh, they would have been able to uh, to lambast David Cameron as, as weak, weak, weak. Um, but it is the reshuffle that's dominated everything, and um, it officially ended about an hour ago after nearly uh, sixty-six hours.
1: Wow, blimey! So it did get longer than uh, than Britney's marriage in the end. Um, what was the? Why did it go on so long? Do we have any idea why that was?
0: So I think it was partly because there were a lot of um, complicated conversations which 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 clearly needed needed to be had, uh, particularly with with Hillary Benn and the exact understanding they've come to is still a matter of dispute. Also because Jeremy has uh, limited experience of, of of reshuffles, to to put it mildly. Clearly, he'd never been involved with one until um, he actually became uh, the top man. And then because on, on Tuesday, there were four uh, ministerial statements, which meant that um, they did um, have problems, obviously, um, getting hold of people when they needed to, because they were in the chamber, and uh, and that was why um, the main uh, news was announced uh, at nearly 1 am um, on Wednesday morning. Um, but I think the big picture is that um, Jeremy Corbyn's internal position has been strengthened by this this reshuffle. Um, Hillary Benn has been kept in post to the disappointment of some of his allies, but he's got um, a trident opponent of defence, uh, M- Emily Thornberry replacing Marie Eagle, who was an unambiguous supporter of uh, of um, the nuclear deterrent, And that means that um, although I'm told by senior sources that a free vote is still likely when the House of Commons votes on Trident renewal later this year, the defence review that Labour's holding is now led by two supporters of, um, two opponents of Trident, Emily Thornberry and, and Ken Livingston. And there's now clearly a pathway to Labour becoming a unilateralist party again, to adopting a policy of... of scrapping Trident where to come to power in 2020. Um, and what's
1: the kind of mood in, uh, in Westminster and in the PLP about the reshuffle? Are Team Corbyn
0: as if they've had a big win? I think they feel that defence is their their big win. They've also been able to demonstrate through the sackings of Michael Dargo who was the Shadow Culture Secretary, and Pat, Pat McFadden, who was the Shadow Europe Minister, that there are consequences for, um, as they put it, disloyalty, and that's a signal to other Shadow Cabinet members that if they overstep the mark in the view of uh, Tim Corbyn, then they will be sacked. And also, we've learned now that it's possible to sack people and not to face significant reprisals. So that you had nine Shadow Cab- Cabinet members who came out after Michael Duggar's sacking and lamented his loss and praised him. None of them came close to resigning. And so I think uh, Corbyn's authority has been, has been strengthened by that. I think the view of... Um, uh his opponents is that um they've managed to keep Hillary Benn which they're pleased about they've managed to keep Rosie Winterton as as chief whip which they see as a as a big victory but they concede that they may have picked the wrong battle in um in going uh going to the wall to, to protect Hillary Benn by threatening um mass resignations because of course that dispute over over Syria is is in the past there may be Future disputes over over foreign intervention, but um, the big battle to come, which everyone is 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 now focused on, is is of course Trident, and some of them do feel that they their efforts should have been focused on keeping Marie Eagle or um, a Trident supporter in that role.
1: Trident is of course totemic in the Labour Party, which is why it's so divisive. Uh, Europe is. Totemic within the Conservative Party, and Cameron has also been forced to move to manage his split. Uh, would you tell us a bit about the background to that?
0: Yes. So um, David Cameron said as recently in January in an interview with um, Andrew Marr that uh, he wasn't going to offer a free vote um, as Howard Wilson did, of course, in, in 1975, the last time we had an e referendum. But he's been forced to. Climb down, and everyone always thought it was a question of when rather than if, because it is politically the only sensible option. When you've got um, as many as six or seven cabinet ministers um, who who support who oppose EU membership, um, it's the best means of, of trying to um, hold the Conservative Party together and avoid um, a formal split um, or a sort of permanent uh, permanent schism, and um, the. the the risk of it, of course, is that it likely increases the number of, of cabinet ministers who will be prepared to support um, who will be prepared to oppose eu membership because they won 't have to have to resign in in order to do so uh, the The danger of that is that it increases the likelihood of um, a no vote of, of brexit and of course although he's not saying this publicly when asked, um, the likelihood is that David Cameron would have to resign if uh, the u k voted to to leave the eu um, but it, it, it seems the, the inevitable option and it is, it is by far the, the least worst one.
1: Ah, right. Thank you very much for that. We'll let you go on with and that's uh, uh, Bye to George and bye from me.
2: You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Planning for your next trip?